0: Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Today, our show is called Voices of the Maine Fishermen's Forum, Perspectives from the Archives. For the last few months, Coastal Conversations has been featuring stories and perspectives from Maine's fishing industry, one of our favorite themes on Coastal Conversations. Lately, though, with the pandemic having canceled so many events, such as the annual Maine Fishermen's Forum, it felt especially important for us to offer a venue where we can share perspectives from the fisheries, and this month is no different. So to prepare for today's episode, we dispatched our stellar team of student production assistants from College of the Atlantic to sift through the archives of 60 plus interviews collected at the Maine Fishermen's Forum in 2018 and 2019. For listeners unfamiliar with the Maine Fisherman's Forum, for nearly 50 years, it's been an annual gathering place for hundreds of people connected with Maine's fishing industry, and it's a great place to swap fishing stories, share science, discuss fisheries management, and scope out the latest commercial fishing gear. The interviews you'll hear today are part of the Voices of the Maine Fishermen's Forum collection compiled by the First Coast, Maine Sea Grant, College of the Atlantic, and the Island Institute. We'll share about a dozen clips today, but you can access many more at thefirstcoast.org vmff for Voices of the Maine Fishermen's Forum, or you can find all 63 interviews archived at the NOAA Fisheries Oral History Archives, which you can find pretty easily with a Google search. Specifically, the clips you'll hear today feature several fishermen and their family members, including Herbert Carter Jr, a commercial shellfish harvester at a deer isle, Edwin McKee, a lobsterman from Prince Edward Island, Canada, Dave Cousins, a lobsterman from South Thomaston, Avery Waterman, a lobsterman from North Haven. Dan Harriman, a fisherman who operates Maine's last mackerel weir in Cape Elizabeth, and Marsha Beale Brazier, who's from a fishing family in Ogunquit. Others who are connected to the fishing industry that you'll hear from today include Pat Shepard, a fisherman who works at Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries in Stonington, Paul Anderson, the director of Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries in Stonington, Phil Conkling, co-founder and former president of the Island Institute, Parker Gassett, a University of Maine graduate student at the time of the interview, and U.S. Senator Angus King from Brunswick. So for most of today's show, I'll actually be handing the reins over to our three amazing production assistants. The narrator you'll hear weaving through the stories is Camden Hunt, who, if you're curious for more, helped us produce a show about Maine's sardine heritage a few months back. Behind the scenes, we also had tremendous help from Ella Keegan, who also assisted on a past show, in that case, about Maine's seaweed industry. And our third assistant this go-round is Ellie White. New to working on Coastal Conversations, but we're super glad to have her. Ellie, Camden, and Ella are all three students at College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, and they've all taken a special interest in audio production as well as coastal main issues. So we're thrilled to offer them an opportunity to hone their storytelling craft through Coastal Conversations here on WERU Community Radio. A final note about today is that we won't be taking any calls as this show was pre-recorded. And with that, I will hand it over to Camden Hunt to get us going with today's show and one of the themes, ecosystem-based management.
1: Now, let's get to our topic today. As we were listening through the 63 interviews conducted at the 2018 and 2019 Forum, we continued to hear the term ecosystem-based fisheries management. This term refers to a management style that attempts to consider maintenance of healthy, resilient, and productive ecosystems, instead of focusing exclusively on individual species. While this theme continued to pop up in many of the interviews, we were particularly interested by Paul Anderson's description of ecosystem-based ideas. Paul Anderson is a scientist and executive director for the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries in Stonington. Paul introduces us to trends of collaboration between scientists and fishermen in Maine to develop ecosystem-based fisheries management. Through his interview, he focuses on the importance of learning from fishermen's observation and knowledge. Today's Coastal Conversations episode is focused on what we are calling ecosystem-based thinking, which we are using here in the context of a wider Maine waterfront. Through the next hour, we aim to weave together an image of Maine's marine ecosystem, including the ocean, the fish, and the humans that inhabit it. We want to share the tremendous amount of knowledge and experience fishermen have about the ecosystems they work within. In order to dive deeper into this ecosystem approach to thinking about Maine's waterfronts, the next hour will be separated into three sections. The first section will focus on the water, with discussion of fishing practice and conservation. The second section looks at the surface of Maine's ocean, with a focus on resilience and hope. And finally, the third section focuses on the waters we share with one another, With the theme of working together and lived experience. First, you will hear from Paul Anderson. Then, after Paul, you will hear the voice of Herbert Carter Jr., a commercial shellfish harvester from Deer Isle, Maine. Herb describes his observations during the 64 years he has lived and worked on the local mudflats. He shares insights from his current work to reintroduce mussel beds in South Deer Isle and his hope to collaborate with some of the local research institutions.
2: My occupation right now is Executive Director of the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries, which is in Stonington. We're launching a new initiative at at the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries in partnership with NOAA Fisheries and DMR to explore ecosystem-based fisheries management in eastern Maine. And so we're starting a process right now of convening industry members and scientists to begin to ask ourselves, what do we know we know about the fisheries and the data from ecosystems and observations and monitoring? What do fishermen know? How can we integrate all that? to kind of be a baseline so we can start asking the questions, what do we need to know? The whole thing about the ecosystem-based fisheries management has been talked about for years. I read about it when I was in college. It was this idea that we shouldn't manage one fishery at a time. We should understand their interactions. We should understand how they interact with the environment. When do they breed? When are they fecund? What's their nursery grounds? And so we've talked about those principles for so long, but rarely do we change our behaviors. Rarely do we say, well, let's stop fishing in that nursery ground, or let's, uh, let's think about how these things interact. We want to actually explore how to change behaviors, how to create new policy that's informed by that local knowledge, it's informed by that local sensibility. On Thursday, the clam convening here um, was really striking. There was a couple of Um, moments where I just thought, those are ecosystem-based ideas that if you didn't think across your own little world, you wouldn't get there. So one of them was Herb Carter from over in Stonington, Deer Isle, clammer and clamming forever. And he's got this real concern that in particular bays, if you drag the bottom like you're dragging mussels or something, the silt, the geology of that particular bay is so fine that it kicks up and creates a different sediment profile that becomes a problem for the clams. And he's like, we just we shouldn't drag there. If you're going to harvest those mussels, fine, but let's do it with hand gear instead. That's a pretty simple regulation to put in place. It's going to upset somebody, but it's a changing behavior, and it's responding to um, an observation that was made local. That's local ecological knowledge, what Herb is sharing.
3: My name's Herbert Carter, Jr. I'm from Deer Isle, born and brought up in Deer Isle. And I'm a commercial shellfish harvester. My father used to tell me that some days I'd go climbing and he'd give me an onion sack and he'd say, fill this. What that was to be filled with was scallops. So I would go out 12 years old with my sneakers on and doing my clamming, and take this bag and put it on my mud sled and tow it out walk with my just no snorkel, no nothing, and walk over and pick up a bag of scallops and bring them in. And my dad was the only time he'd come get my clams if I had a bag of scallops. He'd come down and like help me put my clams on the truck. And on that I lugged them up to south there. But it, the scallops in there, the fishermen would go out, single man, every day. In Southeast, there was 35 fishermen in that cove in the hall of South Deer They all towed together. Nobody bothered anybody. And they would tow, and the scallops was like the bottom size of a Coca-Cola bottle. Every one. They didn't take small ones. They didn't touch them. They didn't need to. They couldn't shell them. They had to do the biggest ones. And they they would push over out of a two-foot hand drag. They'd push over, over a bushel of clear scallops, and it was sand. Today in South Carolina, I would love to have the Marine, uh, the, the College of Atlantic, um, um, University of Maine, come down in South Carolina. One of the finest places for them to do their testing on what has happened to the fisheries. It can prove all stories right there, because right now on the ocean floor, what I found snorkeling, diving down and. 10 feet of water, and inside of this is where I used to pick the scallops up. It was sand. It was red sand. Today, there is zero sand in South Darrell. Anywhere. We got places that are dead zones, and I mean dead. There is zero clams in this zone, and there hasn't been for years. And I used to, I used to go there, drive down to the beach with my car and pack it on the beach, and dig rate two hards from the car, fill a lamb, go get two more and stop and have a drink on the second pair and uh, and dig a tide and load the car with clams, 12, 14 bushel. There is zero. We have, I'm estimating and dear in dear all this right now we have 13% of the clam flats that we had when I was 15 years old. And that isn't much to pass on to my kids and my grandchildren, so... In Deerall Harbor right now, I have um, probably 4,000 bushels of mussels seeded in over the flats. I moved them out, moved them on a mussel bed. i got to move them again. i got to pick them up, put more seaweed under them because they're set in the mud. The ice is pushing them down because the soot on the bottom isn't good anymore. And make a bed and hope it, it'll seed again. Uh, I know, I know they'll catch. And I have the mussels in Deerall Village to seed. So if I put the nets outside of them, that's my best chance of trying to catch the seed. And from that point, we want to make mussel beds. We've got to cover them back up so the soot doesn't travel. We can get it so the water is cleaned up because they are the filter feeder of the ocean. Number one, there was millions of bushels and now we have none. Dirty water warms quicker than clean. So the minute we clean the water, we can change the temperature. We can reverse what's happened if we go to work on it. But if we argue and go in denial for another 20 years, nothing's going to happen. It has to happen, and soon. We don't have time to play and play guilt or non-guilt. We've got to suck it up. It's done. We've got to repair it. So the quicker, the better. I'm trying, but when you go into a meeting like this and you say something to... The high people that are getting paid, it's it's beyond me to listen to them. They, They look at you like, you have no idea what you're saying. I'm a chemist, I'm a biologist, and I've been doing this for 30 years. Well, I've been living mine for 64 years, so I know what I see. I don't have to have a test tube to see it. I'm standing looking at it, so... If you can't believe what I tell you, or I can't, you won't come and let me show you,
1: and you stay away, it's not good. That's not helping. You just heard from Paul Anderson and Herb Carter. Next, you'll hear from Philip Conkling, co-founder and former president of the Island Institute. Philip describes how Maine coastal communities have become increasingly reliant on the lobster fishery, and what threats this poses to their survival. He recollects one of the first successful collaborations between the Island institute and local lobstermen, which grew to become the current sea sampling program
4: you, you know i so I had a pretty uh, rigorous background in terrestrial ecology, but i knew uh, but I knew nothing about marine ecology and uh, you know my my first view of the islands were the you know was you know the island itself but it was clear that what had happened in terms of the history was tied directly to what, the, what people had been able to harvest or not. You know, it was intimately bound up with the marine environment. So it was fishermen who began teaching me uh, about marine ecology in a way. They would say things like, uh, well, that's the warm part of the bay and you know you're looking out at this but you know, what do you mean the warm part you know it's like <laughs> they, you know it, it isn't it all the same and or they talk about how the tide would run in a counter direction at the bottom than it does at the top or you know very sophisticated understanding of the three-dimensional uh, qualities of the water column and, and the uh and there are a lot of smart fishermen. I, this is a you know tongue and cheek thing that I say, but uh, uh, um, every third lobsterman might you know quote Herodotus or something like that. They were you know, they had a you know a very interesting and broad based um, background. Many of them,
1: as Parker Gassett explains next, it's not only fishermen who notice changes happening in our environment. Local citizen scientists and community members on the coast are also contributing to scientific data. Parker, from Rockland, is a University of Maine graduate student. He talks about a values-based approach to science and citizen science, and describes his graduate work on getting water quality tools to community members across the coast of Maine. He explains why he thinks coastal communities' values and character will play a crucial role as they adapt to a changing environment. In particular, these clips highlight the interconnection between fishermen, fish, and a wider Maine community.
5: I have been getting involved in, in, in asking, asking questions about what are the local effects of climate change and how are local communities either equipped or in need of support for planning and preparing at a, at a municipal scale. And so in the water quality space that's brought me to a, a really large community of, of people who do local water quality testing and specifically my projects over the past couple years have been uh, seeing how able these community water monitoring networks are to look at ocean and coastal acidification. And if they are able to kind of incorporate these new climate change challenges in their regular series of priorities for environmental stewardship, um, what's the next step to get their monitoring to the state level and to federal research programs so that we can kind of best work on these issues collectively. Last year, I helped run a series of citizen science training workshops for coastal acidification, and those took place in Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Maine. And this next year, we're working with that same community uh, to kick off a, a, a blitz sampling event. We're running a, a shell day sampling event where everybody from Long Island Sound to down East Maine can do some sampling in a in a coordinated way and answer some new questions about these you know regional and also very local issues. It's a way to to make the science process feel real and personal for people, and to use science as a tool for. Uh, value-based issues for, for people. You know, Science isn't just a job or a pursuit. It's a tool that we have to answer questions and move forward for the, the betterment of society, the betterment of our communities. And so citizen science is a, a great way to, um, to democratize that mm-hmm. process. And, uh, and it's a great way to have people enjoy the environments that you know, that they call home while also being a part of a project that's thinking about some really long-term stewardship needs and you know, enter a really philosophical space about their home environments and their home communities.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and streaming online at weru.org. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations. A reminder that our show today was pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any calls. And now, back to Camden Hunt, one of our production assistants for today's show.
1: In this next section, we will be focusing on themes of resiliency and hope from the voices of the Maine Fishermen's Forum in 2018 and 2019. You will hear from three people, including Dan Harriman, Pat Shepard, and Angus King. First is Dan Harriman, a fisherman who operates the state's last mackerel weir in Cape Elizabeth, Maine. He speaks about his experience fishing and discusses the issues he sees in the fishing industry, such as unsustainability and lack of access. He believes these challenges stem from knowledge not being passed between generations and suggests that change needs to come from the bottom up.
6: It's tough being a small scale. It doesn't matter if you're sustainable. The government and all these agencies are working on how we're going to fix the way we fish. Well, the problem is, is the way we fish doesn't work. That's why the fishery collapsed. That's why we're in the mess we are now. I really believe that true... An enduring change is going to come from the bottom up. The crap they were talking about in that meeting, going out with one boat, catching a small amount of fish, and selling it for a premium so it becomes economically viable. We're not going to fix the draggers. If they would just open up the damn fishery to hook fishermen, sustainable fisheries, the dinosaurs, those big 100-foot steel, they're going to be dinosaurs they're going to be gone because when diesel fuel hits $5 a gallon, it's not going to be economically viable. They're going to face the same challenges I face. Can I do this? I I really think that if we opened up the fishery to sustainable means that the large-scale operations are going to Meet with their own demise. It's just not going to be economically viable to have a $10 million boat burning huge amounts of fuel and trying to get help for people that are, you know, who's going to be willing to go for next to nothing because fuel ate up most of the profit of the trip and the company wants the other part. And it's just, I, I think they'll be their own demise. I really do. But if we're going to have a reliable, sustainable source like these guys were talking to the restaurants and stuff, you got to have fish. If you don't have fish to sell, then you're not going to be in business. The guy from Red's, if I don't have fish, sometimes I have to, I gotta, or the guy that runs offshore, Tim. If I don't have fish for the markets, they're not going to stay with me for very long. No matter how, what a story I have and what resource I have and how sustainable I am, they're not going to come back. So I just think maybe that's hope, just hope that it will shake itself out, that there is enough people that just want to get out of the sea and fish, They're, you know, but who's going to teach the next generation, who's going to, if, if we don't know how it was done in the past, how are we going to learn our way in the future, and that is being lost at a breakneck speed the basic knowledge of how to go catch things in a sustainable manner I went to school with a bunch of guys and I thought I was Joe Fisherman because I knew how to go fishing and it was my heritage these guys went down and ended up in the wheelhouse of these hundred foot steel boats you know why because they knew how to turn the damn electronics on and somebody showed them plots on a piece of paper where the fish are go there and tow around and you're going to make money. And they did. I was stubborn and stayed in my little boat. I'm kicking myself now. I'm 60 years old. I want to go into the wheelhouse of one of those draggers and just retire. But I've really come to the conclusion that isn't really where I want to be. I don't agree with it, even though it's my family. My people came from Denmark in 1890 to run steam powered beam trawlers that's why they came here there was there was real money in fishing there was real opportunity here opportunity enough to leave your heritage and your family of 13 and pick up and say you know let's go give it a shot i think we can do well so it's funny how things play themselves out, you know, how it's kind of come full circle from steam-powered beam trolls to destroying the fishery back around to the eldest of the two brothers that came that started doing fish traps. I'm still fishing off the same beach, the same site that he set up, that he found the fish. This is, he fished seven traps. I fish one, near kills me. And this was the hot spot. That's what I inherited, is just the knowledge I I gained that that this was the best out of all the sites. Because pound netting is a site-specific fixed-gear fishery, and I'm so fixed, it isn't like gill nets, and I can set them here and they're going to be fixed. No, I set on the side of Richmond Island, on the north end of Saco Bay. If the fish come to me, I make some money. If the fish don't come, sometimes I lose money because i got to keep the crew in fuel at least because they ain't going to be back tomorrow if they ain't got any gas in the car. It's just how it is. got to have groceries enough to keep the old lady shut up long enough to go out and try to haul the damn thing again. <laughs> Why we would do this again, it's pitiful. It's, it's desperate sometimes. I've been weeks without fish, and I talked to old Tommy Coffin. He's a stop-saner from Hopswell, and I said something about, God, we're starving. I need a piece of twine to patch up my net. We're starving. He says, kid, you don't know starving. I went almost two years without a set. It got to be the point where the local store shut me down on credit. I couldn't get a can of beans anymore. And the local store was owned by my cousin. (laughs) That was it. I was shut off. And we had a set, and we pumped for four days, carrier after carrier after carrier. And I went up and put down the down payment in cash for my new truck. Paid off my bills, cleared up with a bank, and he grinned at me. 80-year-old Tommy Coffin. and he had a gold tooth in the front with a little diamond set in the middle of it. I freaked me out. <laughs> I just didn't know what to think. His old guy he smiles. He had been broke a smile all time. He smiles at me, and he's got a gold tooth, a little diamond set in it. That's the kind of thing we're losing.
1: Next, you'll hear from Pat Shepard, who works in the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries and was born in Stonington, Maine. He talks about his experiences growing up in a fishing family and lobstering with his brother from a very young age. He describes the changes he sees in his hometown, and what the future of fishing in Maine might hold, particularly in finding ways to make more money from a smaller amount of high-quality product. In his current position, he works with fishermen to improve their markets and opportunities, and he ends by sharing a success story in the limited groundfish fishery.
7: I am a a sector manager for a a group of groundfish fishermen that operate from uh, well, they hold permits from Jonesport, Maine, all the way to Cape Cod. Um, so there's one of 18 different ground. We're one of 18 groundfish sectors in New England. Um, we have uh, 33 permits in our sector. Most of them are lobster fishermen who hold uh, uh, groundfish permits in hopes that the groundfish resource will rebound in eastern Maine, so that they can have the opportunity to go again in my lifetime. So I'm 30. In my lifetime, I've witnessed, um, an entire coast full of fishermen, um, uh, boats of all different sizes, fishing for all different kinds of things, uh, fishing for, uh, scallops and groundfish and herring and shrimp. Um, my dad would, um, fish for lobsters in the, in the, uh, summer and fall. And then he'd re-rig his boat for scallops in the winter, and he would drag for scallops all winter. And then he would uh, take the scallop rigging off, and he would go uh, either seining for herring or ground fishing in the spring, and then he'd roll right back into lobstering. And that was, um, that was what you had to do to make up an income. You were a diverse fisherman, and you had licenses for all of these different things to fish. And in my lifetime, over the past 30 years... We've been condensed to just one fishery here on the coast of Maine. And lobster is king, and we don't really have access to much of anything else. So I think, um, uh, and this is the reason I do what I do, I um, I see a lot of value in having a diverse set of fisheries to, to go after. And um, I think we the Ecosystem benefits of having a diverse set of species out there that have sort of all intermingle, and um, the benefits to communities to having a diverse set of resources to to process for, you know, infrastructure and shoreside businesses. um, We need to get back to that. Um, A species will uh, uh, just take a digger, and we have to figure out, okay... You know, this resource has, has all but collapsed. Um, if it's starting to come back, um, we need to limit the amount that we're taking, and we need to figure out how to make a profit from that. Uh, some of these other species, like lobster, um, we have a, a, an amazing resource of lobster. Is it going to take a, a crash in the lobster fishery to start to change people's minds about the volume that they're bringing in? Um, I hope not. Um I hope we can we can start to figure that out um shrimp uh the same story the shrimp fishery crash in the state of maine and and we may or may not be seeing that resource come back there there is some talk of of maybe having a fishery next year, but it's going to be very limited in in scale through these these um these species crashes we've figured out how to innovate. Um, and some of the best ideas, actually probably all of the best ideas on how to capture the value of a limited amount of resource have come from fishermen. And that's been pretty cool to watch. The scallop, We saw it in the scallop fishery uh, along the eastern half of the coast of Maine. Um, we, uh, our organization held, I think, over 125 meetings with scallop fishermen um, as the resource was starting to come back. And, uh, at each of those meetings, we said, okay, this, you know, it seems like there might be something happening here with this resource. We were, anecdotally, we're seeing, uh, things start to build back up. How do you guys want to manage it? And in Eastern Maine, we heard a resounding, um, uh, opinion of the fishing fleet that wanted a, this to try out this rotational style management. So, Fishermen got together with each other, um, basically divided the whole eastern coast up uh, into big sections, and said, "Okay, you know, based on what we know about the biology of the animal, they should be either two or three uh, year rotations." So we we designed this three year rotation uh, rotational area management for the eastern half of the coast, and I think we're seven years into it, six or seven years into it now. And we've seen uh, the most boats that have participated in that fishery in the past 10 years uh, just sort of, you know, bounce right back. It's not perfect. It's got its issues. The, the management structure has its issues. But we've effectively figured out how to harness the knowledge of fishermen to in, in order to, to preserve a resource and make it more sustainable. And guys are making a... a a little bit of a living in the wintertime, which is a pretty cool success story.
1: To close out this section, Angus King, a United States Senator from Brunswick, Maine, speaks about the community and cross-section of challenges and interests that are represented by people who attend the Maine Fishermen's Forum.
8: I think I've come, not every year, but I've been coming uh, at least 20 years. I remember first coming in the 90s uh, when I was governor of Maine and uh, meeting with uh, with fishermen then. Uh, at that time, there was more offshore uh, fin fish fishing. Now, uh, 80% of the value of uh the ocean product in Maine is lobsters. Today, several people have brought up what's called the gray zone, which is an area near the border, uh, down east uh, near the Canadian border, where it's still not fully resolved as to whether it's Canadian water or U.S. water. And there's friction in there between the fishermen and, and what the jurisdiction is. Uh, One fellow wanted to talk about health insurance, another wanted to talk about taxes. Um, They talked about the steel tariff and how that might affect the price of a lobster trap that was imposed yesterday. Well, I think we're all concerned about climate change. The Gulf of Maine is warming faster than any other body on Earth except the Arctic Ocean. And we're not sure of all all the implications of that. The other thing that's happening is, as more and more CO2 is in the atmosphere, uh, a good deal of it is is captured in the ocean and turns into a carbonic acid. And that creates problems for shellfish to form their shells. So we're talking about uh, ramifications and and uh, impacts that are hard to measure but are nonetheless serious. I think the most serious uh, is whether what the effect of climate change will be on the lobster. As I think I mentioned, 80% of the value of fisheries in Maine is lobster, and the lobster population in recent years has generally started to move north and east. The one thing we know of that there will be change, we don't know what the next 10 or 20 years is going to look like, but Maine people are very ingenious and adaptable, and uh, they tend to be able to make a success out of whatever nature deals them. And I think, you know, uh, we're going to see change uh, significantly, but I think we'll be okay.
1: In the final section of today's show, we will focus on the waters we share with one another. In the following clips, you will hear from Dave Cousins, Edwin McGee, and Avery Waterman, all of whom talk about the value of lived experience working on the water. Dave Cousins from Maine and Edwin McGee from Canada speak about how their work to increase communication between Canadian and Maine lobstermen has benefited both groups by obtaining fair prices and learning new techniques from each other. They humorously talk about a number of collaborations between the two countries, from the inception of the Lobster Institute in Orono to educational trips for young fishermen. Let's hear now from Edwin McGee, a lobsterman from Prince Edward Island, in his conversation with Dave Cousins, a Maine lobsterman.
9: A long time ago... uh... There was a, a senator here in Maine, brought in some legislation and that affected was going to affect the lobstermen in both Canada and the United States. And in Canada, we uh, we seen the people in in the United States going out with all kinds of traps and fishing year round and catching so many lobsters that we could never make money. And uh, so anyway, we uh, that's how I met Dave, our our uh, consulate in Boston. Invited us, invited us down to uh, talk about about lobsters. And so we flew down to Boston. A few of us. We were sitting in the room in the consulate. and I was saying, "Out here, with these Americans fishing all them traps, trying to starve us to death." <laughs> and Dave could take over from from because He was thinking something a little different,
10: yeah. <laughs> looking across the table. <laughs> we went in and we were sitting. Goddamn Canadians, I mean, they're they are catching all the lobsters just to make our price go down. It's like, because our dealers were telling us, you know, the Canadians are just loading up on lobsters, and we got to lower the price, lower the price. So we're like, freaking Canadians, I mean, they're making our life miserable. So we started talking, and after about five minutes, and I think a rum and coke or something, we went, these guys are just like us. They're not the problem. And they were, I think, well, Edwin, I think, and say, you guys aren't the problem. So we decided that we'd try to solve the problem. So we made friendships and stayed in touch, and we decided we'd put out a price report from all the places along Maine and Canada, whether they were fishing or not, because that was key. Because our dealers were telling us, these guys in Prince Edward Island are nailing the lobsters. Well, come to find out in real life, they weren't even fishing. Dave it was me, closed.
9: They <laughs> called me up and uh, I said, well, not really, Dave. We're not catching any lobsters. We're iced in. It was about the 10th of May before we could get a boat out of the harbor.
10: <laughs> so we've been told for the last 10 days, the reason the price dropped May 1st was that PEI fishermen are just killing it. So I called Edwin and, no, we're iced in. We're not fishing. So needless to say, I called a few dealers and let them know what I thought. And it wasn't the prettiest of conversations, and we probably didn't get off to as best of friends, but we started publishing it in our n- newsletter, and you could call if you wanted a price. That was before, you know, electronics and social media days. and all that stuff. Now there are no secrets, but back then there were secrets, and I thought, you know, that was probably the the best thing we did. And I think that was 1989. Yeah, 1988 ni- or 89. Or 89. Back in
9: the days of fax machines, yeah. so it was almost like smoke <laughs> signals. <laughs>
10: so we just bypass the politicians because we we said we could solve all these problems we got half a gallon of rum yeah. we could solve them no and we, politicians and we done that one
9: time in uh in orno we put uh, there was that was the really the start of the lobster institute i, I believe yeah. but we, yeah. we we came to orno and there was there was everyone was a little tense there was a lot of people from canada that yeah, i don't know that we should be here and i think the same thing was going on in, in maine and we had a CBC report- reporter that was with us. that was a real, real character. But anyway, we ended up in. Uh, we had the whole meeting in a hotel room the night before the meeting. <laughs> there was like, there was quite, a, quite a bit of fluid uh, refreshments. <laughs> yeah. The next morning, everyone was friends and they just like, have a coffee. And- yeah. telling jokes it was it was done, Everybody, done. it was done.
10: It was, <laughs> done it was done the meeting was over we'd solved the problems and we were all having a good time and I was sitting around like that was easy yeah. <laughs>
0: As you listen to these two fishermen, Edwin McKee from Prince Edward Island and Dave Cousins from Maine, as they banter and laugh while they reminisce about their efforts to open the lines of communication between fishermen across political boundaries separating the U.S. and Canada, you get a sense of the camaraderie that can build between fishermen no matter their age or their nationality. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio, 89.9 FM in Blue Hill, and streaming online at weru.org. Our show today is focused on archived interviews from the 2018 and 2019 Maine Fishermen's Forum. A reminder that our show today was pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any calls. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, and I got a lot of help today from my production assistants, Camden Hunt, Ella Keegan, and Ellie White. Let's turn back now to Dave Cousins, our lobsterman from South Thomaston, who was a long-time leader of the Maine Lobstermen's Association, and Edwin McKee, a leader in Prince Edward Island's fishing industry, as they share their commitment to helping the next generation of fishermen understand sustainable fishing and the value of exchanges across the border between the U.S. and Canada.
10: I've been friends with Edwin since we first met, and so... We got talking, and Patrice, our executive director, was like, you know, we should educate these guys, because I've always been advocating that you can do more with less. I mean, you know, the American way is bigger, 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 more, 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 and we got a problem with that right now. And so we said, let's show them how they fish. Let's show the kid, the younger people, how they do it in Canada, because it's a totally different fishery. It's It's a two-month fishery for most of Canada, um, Nova Scotia has a six-month fishery, but their trap limits are anywhere from two hundred and fifty to I think Nova Scotia is the highest one, which is three hundred and seventy-five. Well, we were at unlimited before ninety-six, and then we went to eight hundred and ninety-eight, and so we were at eight. We were more than double than the trap limit up there, and they used a lot less bait. They caught the same amount of lobsters in a lot shorter period of time, and it just was much more economically efficient how they how they did stuff and so when we had plenty of bait and we had you know fishing was going on the upswing all the time no one was interested in being more efficient but now with whales and a bait shortage all of a sudden it's looking a lot more attractive that we need to we have to do another plan so starting I think five years ago and we've been two trips we took a group of 20 or 25 young fishermen that showed that they were fishing, but showed an interest. We schooled them in biology for a day, basic (coughs) lobster biology. We had the scientists come in talk to them. Then we schooled them in management, and then we schooled them in promotion of the product. And so then we took them to Canada, and we went fishing. Edwin did the work up there, and he lined up fishermen that we could stay with. Each kid stayed with a fisherman and went fishing with them. And it, it was different. I mean, everyone had a little different operation, but the premise was the same. They were hauling 270 traps or so every day, you know, not letting them five or six nights set, not like we do, but on them every day. And I can, because I'd been up there fishing, I can remember the first reaction when the kids, when we all got back together at the end of the day, we'd meet at a restaurant and the, their eyes were like this wide. And they would, you know, we were all having a drink. Well, some, I guess, were too young to drink, but the older guys were having a would drink. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, they were like, oh, my God, I couldn't believe the lobsters they were catching. They hauled 270 traps, and they said they hauled them yesterday. And they didn't put hardly any bait on. I mean, they were one fish per trap or a little, a little amount of fish. And they were like, oh, my God, they couldn't believe it. And so it, we said, this is a worthwhile thing.
9: And it's so important to, to have, uh, um, have people going back and forth. And that's where our, the, with, with, what Dave started with the young fishermen coming to Canada it's good to get them up and, and have them see something. I, I just wish we could get more Canadians coming this way and are stopping here on their way to Dominican Republic or wherever they're going, Mexico.
1: Next, Avery Waterman, a 20-year-old lobsterman from North Haven, Maine, speaks about working and living on the island, highlighting his current concerns about government impact and decisions related to the lobster fishery.
11: My name is Avery Waterman. I'm from the island of North Haven. I love that we're kind of separated from the mainland. Living out there is different. Everywhere you look is where you work. Everywhere we go, we're just surrounded by our work environment. Nobody has a fishing wharf to pile traps on or anything out there. 98% 98% of all the waterfront is owned by uh, summer people. So it's it's tricky, but we get it done. I've been fishing for lobster since I can remember. Started out with my dad fishing out of his boat, and then eventually we built a little skiff and I started hand hauling traps. And since then I just have had uh, another outboard and now I'm in a small, full-sized lobster boat. Since I was younger, I've noticed, well, in 2012 when we had the boom, uh, I've seen kind of the swing, I guess, of how lobstering goes, assuming it's seven to 10 year swing. So over the past few years, I've noticed I don't know. There's not quite as many counters. I wouldn't say there's not as many lobsters, especially V-notch females. We throw those over all day. But I've seen when it was really good, and we were catching twenty-seven hundred pounds in the bay, and now uh, last year, you know, twelve or fourteen hundreds, like pretty rock solid. My captain's been fishing his entire life, and he said there, back in the day, you would get a haul all day for 150 pounds or something, and that would be good. So, And he also has had 120 strings, so he's seen it go from all the way down to good and bad and everywhere in between.
1: Thank you for listening to our piece on ecosystem-based thinking that focused on interviews conducted at the 2018 Fishermen's Forum. As students, we've been lucky to be able to immerse ourselves in the stories and knowledge of so many great people. Today, you heard from Paul Anderson, Herb Carter Jr., Philip Conkling, Parker Gassett, Dan Harriman, Patrick Shepard, Dave Cousins, Edwin McGee, Avery Waterman, and Angus King. Finally, we want to say a huge thank you to Natalie Springle, Galen Koch, and the Mapping Ocean Stories interns that made this production possible. Lastly, we would like to end with a voice of Marcia Beal Brazer from Ogunquit Maine. In this clip, Marcia shares the story of her husband, Norman Brazer, a lobsterman who got tangled in a buoy rope and fell overboard. As Marcia reminds listeners to treasure every single minute and to be grateful for what you have. She also highlights the power of individual resiliency and hope within a wider community. Thank you.
12: My name is Marcia Beal Brazer. I want to tell you about a 20th century miracle at sea. On October 14th, 1991, I was in my driveway planting daffodils. A person came to my driveway and told me that my husband had fallen overboard and that he had drowned. I drove down to Perkins Cove. We live in Agunquot, Maine. Drove down to Perkins Cove, and I saw the fishermen there, and I said, please tell me, has this really happened? And they said, well, they found your husband's boat. My husband's name is Norman Brazier, Jr. The name of the boat is the Marshabille, which is after me, a 32-foot Holland fishing boat, lobster boat. And they said, uh, yes, the, we found his boat. The gunnels were dry. Um, Gardner Marshall saw the boat. It was heading toward Port, and they said, we don't think that he had a chance to survive. Mark Sewell from York was getting into his truck in York Harbor, had heard the news about my husband falling overboard, got back in his truck, decided he was going to go and explore the fresh bait in the lobster traps. He was led, he said, he told me he was led to do that. Meanwhile, What happened to my husband, Norman, is the toggle buoy wrapped around his leg, pulled him to the stern of the boat. He had the knife up forward. He was uh, strong enough to pull the rope, fall over, uh, over the side, and then be drawn under the water, and then released the rope from his leg and popped up, and no boat. He looks over, and he sees Boone Island, and he thinks, oh, my gosh. Uh, I'm not ready to go yet, but I'm going to try to swim. Thank God he knew how to swim. Most fishermen don't. He kicked off his boots. He he decided he was going to swim to Boone Island. And so meanwhile, Mark Sewell was the one with his mate, was led to find my husband. He went by this thing that looked like a grassed over lobster buoy and He decided to turn around and not pass pass it over, as he said. He went back and looked. It was my husband's head in the water with his hair coming down, looking looking like a grassed-over lobster buoy, just ready to go to Davy Jones's locker. And I'm on my hands and knees at the dock praying to God, Please, dear God, it was like a bad dream, and everything was in slow motion. Every single thing was in slow motion. Uh, All of a sudden, a friend called across and said they found him. They didn't say if he was dead or alive. He's at York Hospital. So Kathy Tower, Barnacle Billy's daughter, and, and Abby Taylor, my old babysitter, drove me to the hospital. We got there. There was no sign of my husband. I thought, that's it. He didn't make it. And all of a sudden, We got word that he was coming in. They opened up the doors at York Hospital. He came in. He was as gray as a battleship, and he had already had CPR twice. The Coast Guard woman gave him CPR. The York ambulance came in CPR and gave him CPR. I had taken a course in scuba diving, and all the young guys wanted to go sea urchin fishing, right? I was the oldest person in the class and the only woman. And I remember them talking to me about this Dr. Shaker, who was a very good doctor for hypothermia. He's the best one north of Boston. And I said to the hospital, I said, by any chance do you have a Dr. Shaker here? And they said, oh, well, yes, but he's not on call. I said, would you, would you mind calling him? So an hour and a half later, Dr. Shaker comes out of the, the operating room and says said that my husband was literally drowned, that he had a gallon of seawater in him. His temperature was 84, and I think 82. i got to check that out. 82 is as low as you go. His heart was in AFib, but, but he thought he was going to survive. So then he finally came back another hour in a whole room filled with all our friends and people, and, and he came back about an hour later, and said, well, we think that he's going to be okay. You can go in and see him. So I said, I wanted his mother to go in first. So his mother went in first. And then I came in. And the first thing he said to me is, how's the boat? So I knew he was okay. So he he, he came home. And we had a boatload of people streaming in and out of our house. But, you know, it was almost like we had these streams of men come. People come to the house and, and they wanted to hear the miracle. They wanted to hear the story. And my husband, being quiet and shy, he talked in, in that week more than he's talked in a long, long time. He, they keep telling the story. And it was a story of hope. It was a story of hope. He just wasn't meant to go. And And we're still working out. That and what would happen to me is I'd wake up in the morning and I'd think, Did he really die at sea? Did he really make it? Am I dreaming? I had a really hard time uh dealing with that. And he's always been very down to earth. I call him my Gabriel Oak, a Thomas Hardy character. Uh, and um, he. He's always been a very true-to-himself person. He walks every morning. He's a lobsterman. He has a garden. And it really actually changed me more than it changed him because he was already okay. I I just wanted a, a more simple life, and, I, and it brought me down to earth about what was really important. And I think I'm going to cry right now just <laughs> thinking about it. And it's been a long, long time. And I feel so blessed that um, my husband was saved for me because I wouldn't have had him all these years. And we have so much fun. We've been married for 52 years. He's the love of my life. And I'm just so blessed. And, and I, it's hard to even know how to think about it. it. That's just the way it is. It's the synergy of everything working together. And it was truly, truly a 20-century miracle.
0: What an incredible story of hope from Marsha Beale Brazer about her husband's miraculous survival from a near drowning at sea. Fishermen losing their lives at sea is a risk that is far too familiar for so many families in Maine's coastal communities, and we're so grateful to Marcia for sharing her family's story. I especially loved hearing at the end how she says the experience of nearly losing her husband to the sea made her simplify her life and focus on what's important. If there's one thing we hope you might get from these interviews, it's the passion people on the coast of Maine feel for this place we call home, for our communities, for each other, and for the ocean. Whether it was the fishermen, the scientists, or the senator that you heard today, these interviews exemplify the wider community of people in Maine who care so deeply. Some of them fish every day, and their observations about change and fisheries decline is critical to understanding our future. All of the interviews you heard today, and many more, make up the collection called The Voices of the Maine Fishermen's Forum, compiled by the First Coast, Maine Sea Grant, College of the Atlantic, and Island Institute, in partnership with the organizers of the annual Maine Fishermen's Forum. You can access many more interview clips at thefirstcoast.org vmff, that's vmff for Voices of the Maine Fishermen's Forum, or you can find the complete interviews, all 63 of them, archived at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Fisheries Oral History Archives. Just Google NOAA Fisheries Oral Histories and you'll get them. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations. I'm especially grateful to our three student production assistants for this episode for helping sift through more than 60 interviews to land on the ones we've shared today. Camden Hunt was the narrator you heard introducing the interviews, but a lot more work went into compiling these voices, and Camden was assisted by Ella Keegan and Ellie White in all aspects of production. I'm grateful to all three of these College of the Atlantic students for their dedication to getting these stories out to you, our listeners. Thanks also to Galen Koch from the First Coast for helping mentor our production assistants through the process of storyboarding and audio production. And finally, thanks most of all to the interviewees featured in today's show. I'll list them here one last time, so when you run into them on the dock or at the grocery store, you can thank them for their insights. You heard from, and this is in the order in which they appeared, Paul Anderson, Director of Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries in Stonington, Herbert Carter Jr., Commercial Harvester out of Deer Isle, Phil Conkling, Co-Founder and Former President of the Island Institute, Parker Gassett, a University of Maine graduate student at the time of the interview. Dan Harriman, a fisherman who operates Maine's last mackerel weir out of Cape Elizabeth. Pat Shepard, a fisherman who works at Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries in Stonington. U.S. Senator Angus King from Brunswick. Edwin McKee, lobsterman from Prince Edward Island, Canada. Dave Cousins, lobsterman from South Thomaston. Avery Waterman, lobsterman from North Haven. And finally, Marsha Beale Brazer, the Agunquit wife of a fisherman whose brush with drowning was miraculously avoided. We're grateful to all of you, our interviewees, for sharing your story. Thank you. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 4 to 5 p.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. And we also encourage you to listen to our sister program, Talk of the Towns, with host Ron Beard from 4 to 5 on the second Wednesday of each month. The Coastal Conversations theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good weekend.